We're always glad to get together with family. And I know the summer months are upon us and uh, there's going to be a lot of people traveling and we certainly understand that, but we're just glad to be together when we have the opportunity. So thank you for being here today. We are continuing our sermon series. Um, The name of the series is Christ is Risen, Now What? And we've been talking about the power of Pentecost. You know, I I was thinking... Uh, actually, it's been kind of a prevailing thought over the entirety of this sermon series. The thought is this. You know, when Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday, conventional wisdom would have said that that wasn't a sensible way to start a world religious movement. (laughs) I mean, who who would have gone about it that way? And yet, a religious movement it has become. And I really don't like the word religious because it's it's become... uh, Religion has, has in a lot of ways, done more damage than it has good. But I think you understand the context that I'm using the word uh, in. And, and, you know, it's just amazing to me how an obscure carpenter from a tiny village called Nazareth Never wrote a book, never held an earthly high office, never led an army, died a shameful death on a cross, became the man who has affected civilization more than any other person before him or since he was here. Now, how can that happen? Well, part of the reason lies in the fact that, first of all, and most importantly, he rose from the dead. Amen? Amen. He's alive. But another explanation for how it happened is that at Pentecost, God's Holy Spirit came in power on the church. And the, the power of Pentecost enables the church to share... And preach that good news effectively. This morning I, I want to continue with the purpose and the power of Pentecost. Uh, you see, I happen to believe, friends, that the power of Pentecost in many situations has been placed on the back burner in many modern day churches. And, and that's an important thought for us to consider because we find in our text, at least my initial text in Acts chapter number 1, that the purpose of Pentecost as well as the power of, that would fuel that purpose was promised to us by Jesus. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now again, I've asked this question several times during the course of this sermon series. But how many of you, I'll ask two questions. How many of you would like to be a witness for Jesus? Now how many of you would like to be effective as a witness for Jesus? There you go. 
I think, I think every child of God has that innate desire to do something significant for the kingdom of God and witness uh, of the transformation and change that Jesus has brought to each of our lives. However, according to what Jesus said, in order for us to be effective in that pursuit, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, and to direct us. Uh, so we're going to keep hammering on this and, until we, we uh, fully understand and comprehend the importance of Pentecost. I, I, I've committed whatever time is needed to explain Pentecost and the dynamic of Pentecost in such a way that none of us will have any misunderstandings or lack of understanding about what happened on the day of Pentecost some 2,000 years ago and its continued importance in the life of the church today. It's on this day in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit was poured out on 120 followers of Jesus gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem and it was on this day that the church was literally born with a, in a blaze of glory. Some time ago, I read a statement from Dr. Jerry, Dr. Jerry Vines, who was formerly the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and I've never forgotten it. He said, and I quote, the average Christian and the average church are somewhere bogged down between Calvary and Pentecost. They've been to Calvary for pardon, but they've not been to Pentecost for power. Bethlehem meant God with us. Calvary meant God for us. But Pentecost means God in us. And out of that statement came my inspiration many months ago for this sermon series. And, and I'm praying that as my understanding of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit was changed and transformed by some of the study that I've put in for this sermon series, I'm praying that that will happen to you as I try to share it with you. Because, friends, let's just all agree on something. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about the, about the power of the Holy Spirit and His role in the modern-day church. And, and really, it's... It's misunderstanding that has been born out of um, people thinking that in order to experience the presence of God, you have to be, have an emotional experience. Well, it can be emotional. I, I get emotional. I, I'm probably more emotional than anybody in this room. But that does not dictate, you two, that does not dictate whether or not we've been in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I want the Holy Spirit walking with me and leading me and directing me when I'm walking down the aisle at Walmart and I pray that I'm not emotional when I'm doing that. I mean, I pray that I don't have to be emotional. I, I, I don't want somebody to say, oh, look, he's crying. And then come up to me and say, what's wrong? And then I have an opportunity. That's not what it's about. Being led and directed by the Holy Spirit of God, is a way of living. We walk in the Spirit. 
That's what Paul's instruction to us a little bit later on is all about. We are to walk in the Spirit. And now over 28 years of pastoral ministry, I've come to believe that the average believer in Jesus Christ is much like the Ephesian church believers that the Apostle Paul talked about in Acts chapter 19, verse number 2. There Paul asked the question of those believers. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And you know what their answer was? I haven't, we haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. I, I, I fear that, that too many blood-bought, saved, transformed, changed people have not yet become aware of the need and the necessity of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Like them, many believers today don't understand the role of the Holy Spirit. They've not appropriated the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one other preacher said it this way. He said, Pentecost is not a denomination, but it's an experience every blood-bought child of God should receive. And whether you and I or, 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 or any of us agree with that statement about all the different manifestations, the gifts of the Spirit, I absolutely believe that we are privileged to live in a generation where God still desires to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. I believe that to the core of my being. Power of the Spirit recorded in Acts chapter number 2 is not just some interesting historical tale and no more. Many churches of every denomination have rediscovered the vitality and the power of the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. And interestingly, those are the fastest growing churches in the world. Now isn't that amazing? They've discovered a dynamic of the Holy Spirit which is reminiscent of that first day of Pentecost. One church in particular, you've probably heard of it, in Seoul, South Korea was formed and has functioned in the dynamic of the, entire, uh, of the Holy Spirit for the entirety of their existence, they now have a congregation of, are you ready for this? 750,000 people. Uh, need I explain that more? That's three quarters of a million people who belong to one church. Now, they don't all show up for church on Sunday morning for one service. But my point is the, that the Holy Spirit outpouring in that church is largely the reason that today the nation of South Korea is 85% Christian. The largest Christian per capita nation in the world. Now that tells me that the Holy Spirit is key to building the church. I didn't need to be told that in that way because Jesus already told us that. He said, you'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses and you'll be effective. Now the reign of the Holy Spirit is falling on the dry religious ground of our day. And it's bringing, as I've mentioned before, sweet refreshing uh, to weary-hearted believers who have 
been concerned and even dismayed that the purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit has gotten lost upon the church. Now I want you to go with me here in just a moment to, well, let's, let's do this first. Go with me first to Acts chapter number 2. And I want to share with you just two verses from there before I go on to the passage of Scripture that will be my main focus today. Verses 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 2. Now let me give you some context before I share with you what the Apostle Peter shares with those to whom he was preaching. Peter was one of the 120. Peter was one who experienced what took place in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. And immediately after coming down from that upper room, Peter, who's never gone to Bible college, never been educated in, as to how to minister or how to be a preacher, stands up before a group of people from all across the region of Judea who, have, who come back to Jerusalem for this day of Pentecost. They have different languages, they have different dialects, and Peter stands up and preaches to them because they had just witnessed 120 people coming down out of the upper room speaking the wonders of God in languages that they understood and which those people who spoke them had never been taught. They heard God's word being proclaimed. And Peter, by the way, Peter, 50 days prior to this, maybe I should say 53 days prior to this, had denied Jesus openly on three occasions on the night that Jesus was arrested. 53 days. And Peter then stands up and in verse number 38 of Acts chapter number 2, he tells those folks listening to them, to him, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, in effect, Peter is saying that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which had just come in that upper room, was not just a special blessing for a select few in a specific age of the church. It wasn't just for those 120. It wasn't just for those 3,000 that ultimately came to Jesus as a result of Peter's preaching on that day. Many in the modern day church today have allowed the enemy, uh, the devil, and we've even allowed religious tradition to rob us of the power of God, suggesting that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was only for the early church. Well, what can I say? The devil can only wish that were true. Because the promise of the Holy Spirit is for all people who receive the call to repent. And that includes every one of us. We've all been called to repentance. God is still calling men and women and boys and girls to be saved. So that tells me that the promise is still good for now. Now listen to me carefully. There's an experience after salvation called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
At the moment of salvation, people have the Holy Spirit take up residence inside of them. They are saved, and the Holy Spirit places them into the body of Christ. But beyond that, those same believers need to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit, enabling them to have special soul-winning power. How many of you want special soul-winning power? Amen. Talking to the right people. What am I saying? I'm saying that saved people are not always filled with the Holy Spirit. They ought to be. They can be, but many aren't. Why is that a big deal? Because if we're not filled with and not walking in the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, the witness that you are giving to people may not be the effective witness that the Spirit of God wants you to give. Because you are not doing it under the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, what was the promise of Pentecost? It was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon all flesh, both men and women. Are you flesh this morning? Are you included in the all? He desires to pour it out upon all of us. Luke 24, 49, Jesus' words, Look, I'm sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Ten days after Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent that promise of the Father, and the faithful ones who had obeyed his words and remained in the city and waited in that upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter number 2 declares, this is it. This is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made to his people. That's your introduction. Now I want us this morning to examine this sermon of Peter's. And to do that, I want you to go back with me to one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's Joel chapter number 2. Now I'm going to wait just a minute because Joel's not always easy to find. It's one of those small books toward the end of the New Testament. But the prophet Joel gives us some very important information in Joel chapter number 2. You may have it on your smartphone. You may be trying to find it in your Bible. So uh, go with me to chapter 2 of the minor prophet Joel's writing. And let's look at verses number 23. Uh, Verse 23 through 25. You know, one word portrays the purpose of Pentecost better than any other word that I can think of. And it's the word harvest. Now, we live in southwest Kansas. We're familiar with that term. We know what harvest is. And while the Jewish feast of the harvest celebrated the bringing in of harvest grain... Pentecost was designed to celebrate not only the bringing in of a harvest of souls for the kingdom of God, but also the enablement to do that effectively. Are you there yet? Joel chapter number 2. Verse number 23. Joel says these words. Children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord your God. Because he gives you the autumn rain for your vindication. 
He sends showers for you, both autumn and spring rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and olive oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust ate, the young locust, the destroying locust, and the devouring locust, my great army that I sent against you. Now what in the world does all of that mean? Well, some of you know that I used to be a farmer. I was a farmer for 16 years before I entered the ministry. Now, as a farmer, I knew some things about farming. Uh, two things that are necessary to produce a bountiful harvest for a farmer. First one is the early rain, the spring rain, the, 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 the former rain, which prepares the soil for the planting of seed. I was at Satana Day uh, with my, some of my classmates here just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, as you might guess, when you go to a small town in southwest Kansas for a celebration and uh, you've grown up with those people, you all have basically one thing in common, the farm. And so as we talked, I would say to them, hey, you got your corn planted yet? And the common response, at least this year, was, well, I've dusted it in. You know what that term means? It means it's too dry for the corn to come up. So you dust it in and then you wait on the rain to sprout it and to let it begin to grow. As Ryan said, thank you God for the rain. We were praying for it and God answered, didn't he? Now that's one thing that's necessary. You need early rain to prepare the soil for the planting of the seed. But you also need the latter or the later rain, which will mature the crop, allow the plant to develop, fill with grain, and then mature as harvest approaches. You need the early rain, and you need the latter rain. Now look down in chapter 3 of that same book of Joel, Verse number 9, where Joel continues his prophecy. He says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for holy war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the men of war advance and attack. Now, what does that mean? Well, go to verse number 13. He says, Swing the sickle because the harvest is ripe. Come and trample the grapes because the wine press is full. The wine vats overflow because the wickedness of the nations is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. You know what I think Joel was seeing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He was seeing a day when wickedness would inhabit the earth to the point where it was almost ready to swallow up uh, the people of the earth. And he looks at those people and he sees multitudes of people in the valley of decision. Now what does that mean? It means that they are waiting in a place where a decision is going to be made. A decision that will impact, I believe, their eternal state. A decision that says yes to Jesus, which will result in eternal life with him. John chapter 3, verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But there are also those who will make another decision. And their decision is to not 
except Jesus and his saving work. Their decision will seal their eternal future in a place called hell. Multitudes, Joel said. Multitudes in the valley of decision. Friends, there are a lot of people out there who have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus. Do you know what they need? They need someone to show them a good reason to make a decision for Jesus. They need to see the transforming change that the power of Jesus Christ can bring to a heart like yours and mine. They need to see that it's not just some mantra that's being spoken, but that it is a change that is visibly apparent in the lives of those who have made that decision. And they need to be given an effective witness that Jesus can do what he has done for them. He can also do it for them. That's what they need. Now who's going to do that? That's what we're here for. We're the ones that have to take that witness. But it has to be an effective witness. Joel's looking ahead to the time when it will be time to reap a harvest. The reign of the Holy Spirit is preparing the fruit of the earth for harvest. That's us. We're going to be part of the harvest. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, Peter cast a net. You see, he used to be a fisherman. But this time, the net that Peter cast wasn't for fish. He had become what Jesus told him he was going to make him, a fisher of men. And once empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it effectively, Peter's casting of that net resulted in 3,000 souls getting saved and coming into the kingdom on that first day of the church. That's pretty powerful. You see, God's not given us the Holy Spirit to enjoy alone while the world around us rushes full speed ahead toward hell. We, have, we cannot forget lost people. They are people whom God loves. People for whom Jesus died. People who Christ commanded you and I to evangelize with the good news that Jesus can save them. You see, life is short, friends. And many lost people, many of them don't have much time left. We have so little time left when you consider our lifespan in light of eternity. So my question is, when are we going to wake up? Forget about playing our silly religious games and mean business for God. Well, the answer to that question is when we become empowered with the Holy Spirit. That's when all that will happen. Souls are hanging in the balance. Some whom we know, people whom you know today, are going to spend eternity in hell unless we go in the power and the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit and rescue them from a godless eternity. We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. The modern day church, in many ways, has lost the power of God. Unfortunately, many churches have become barely recognizable as anything other than a social club, a civic organization, 
with a religious tint to it. Do you remember the story of Samson and Delilah in the Old Testament? How many of you have heard the story of Samson and Delilah? Well, I don't have time to tell you the whole story. I've given you the scripture references where if you haven't heard it, you can go read it for yourself. But I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version of the story. Samson was given to the people, the nation of Israel, to fight for God's people. The people of Israel were being oppressed by people who were known as the Philistines. And so God gave Samson to his parents, and he gave Samson a special physical strength. I, I mean, if you read some of the exploits of Samson, he, uh, he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. By himself. He did some amazing things. Found in Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter number 16. Now, there was a secret to Samson's strength. And as strange as that may sound, what I mean when I refer to that is that Samson was born a Nazarite. And as a Nazarite, Samson was not to cut his hair or his beard. Samson's mother was told and his father were told before he was born, I'm giving you this son, he's to be a Nazarite. Don't cut his hair, don't cut his beard, for his supernatural physical strength lay in his hair. Now, I know that sounds strange, but that's what the Word tells us. Samson did amazing things with that supernatural strength. Time and time again, he overpowered those who stood in opposition not only to Israel, but to Israel's God, Jehovah God. And as Samson grew into adulthood, pride started to invade Samson's life. And Samson started associating with people that did not have his best interests at heart. And on one occasion, Samson met up with a prostitute whose name was Delilah. Don't name your daughters Delilah. Has a bad ring to it. He met up with a prostitute whose name was Delilah who conspired with the Philistines to find the secret to Samson's superhuman strength. And Samson would go to Delilah and... Uh, she would ask him the secret of his strength, and on two occasions he told her something that was the secret to his strength that was a lie. And so when the Philistines would come upon him, Samson again would break the ropes that they bound him with and, and defeat them again. And poor old Delilah, she sang, Samson, if you really loved me, you wouldn't lie to me about something that important. And so Samson ultimately caved in. And he told Delilah in Judges chapter number 16, he said, Delilah, if my hair is head is shaved, I'll be like any other man. And so while Samson slept, Delilah shaved his head. And then the Philistines 
came in. And Samson, again, thinking that he had the same power that he had always had, got up and found that he was as weak as any other man. The Philistines took him captive, gouged out his eyes, imprisoned him, and eventually put him at a mill grinding wheat for their people. Now, that's a brief synopsis of the story, but let me tell you my application. Just like Samson, many churches don't even know that the power of the Holy Spirit of God has left them. They still go through with their ritual. They still have a form of religion. But they have no power to their religion. Do you know why? Because they've compromised. Because they've compromised and said, Oh, you know what? We can do it with clever programming. We can do it with talented people. We, we, can, we can be a church, an effective church, by, by offering gimmicks to get people in. And yes, they can. But what they produce is, as Chuck Colson said in his book, The Body, we've produced evangelicals 3,000 miles wide and only an inch deep. doesn't take much to throw those kinds of people off track. They have a form of religion, but they deny the power thereof, is what the Scripture says. Just like Samson. Samson lost his God-given power and could do nothing but live a defeated life. As I said, the Philistines had gouged out his eyes. They'd bound him. They'd tied him to a grinding wheel. And you know what he was doing? He was working for the enemy the rest of his natural life. Religion and tradition will rob people and will rob their churches of the power of God and will leave them serving the enemy and they don't even realize it. You say, Pastor, that's a pretty strong statement. How are they serving the enemy, you might be wondering? If they're not overcoming the enemy by the power of God in them, they are serving the purposes of the enemy by accomplishing his goal in watching them punch their ticket for eternity in hell. They don't even realize it. Powerless people, powerless churches have been blinded by the devil, bound up doing a Mickey Mouse type of religion, and the worst part is many of them don't even realize it. I'm here to tell you today that God wants His church to know that it's a new day. And he wants to restore his church by restoring the power of the Holy Spirit in his church. I'm closing with three major ways. Three major ways in which the power of Pentecost can be restored to our churches. The first one is worshiping power. Worshiping power. The Holy Spirit will help you worship God in spirit and in truth. The chief aim of man is to worship God, but the devil has deceived people uh, concerning this matter of worship. You say, how? Well, I'm glad you want to know how because I'm getting ready to tell you. He's made us to believe that we can go to church, sit in a soft chair in an air-conditioned room, 
stare at the back of someone's head in front of us, refuse to sing the songs that we don't like, and barely whisper as we pretend to sing the ones that we do like, and then listen to a 15-minute sermonette from a preacher telling you how wonderful you are and how wonderful you're doing at being religious all the while you're having to fight staying awake, and then you go home and tell yourselves, I've been to worship. Aren't you glad you asked? That's not being a worshiper. That's being a spectator. That's being an observer. Real worship demands your participation. Real worship is giving yourself your attention, your praise to God. And the Holy Spirit will help you to worship God in that way, worshiping in the Spirit. He will help you to lift your soul to God. Help you to forget about your petty preferences. Hello? Help you eliminate all the distractions around you and allow you to touch the very heart of God with your heart of worship. The power of Pentecost will also restore warning power to our churches. The Holy Spirit will help us warn people of the dangers of eternity in hell and the lake of fire. Question. How in the world can people claim to love God and serve God when they apparently have no concern for lost people around them? That's a great question. If you have the power of the Holy Spirit living in you and working in you, you will find an opportunity to warn the people you love about their sinful ways, God's judgment of sin, that, of that sin, and the reality of hell, the lake of fire, and eternal separation from a loving God. How many of you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Oh, come on now. We all know somebody that doesn't know Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit will help you in warning them of what's to come if they continue to walk and live apart from Jesus. Friends, there's a place called the lake of fire and it's in hell. And it's for all unbelievers who never come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible tells us we'll be cast into the lake of fire and will endure eternal torment there. And eternal is a long time. It's forever. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, there will be a holy urgency within you to point people to Jesus so that they too can be delivered from eternal judgment in hell and set free from the power of eternal death. This may not sound real professional, but I'm going to say it anyway. If your neighbor's house was on fire, would you just sit back and say a nice prayer for them? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't just fold your hands and say, Jesus, please help them to get out before they die. Right? 
out of respect for Jesus who died for them and out of, out of love for lost people, you would go to them. If nothing more than just a love for humanity and re- respect for life, you would go to them, you would warn them and say, get out! You're in danger of dying. Go to safety while you still can. That's kind of the way it is spiritually. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, a Spirit-filled believer will warn the lost. And lastly, the power of Pentecost will restore witnessing power to the church. Again, Acts 1.8, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be a fearless, effective witness for Jesus. Instead of being weak and indecisive, scared to stand up for Jesus, the Holy Spirit will take the chicken out of your life and will set you free from that fear. Instead, the power of the Holy Spirit will give you boldness, will give you confidence, will give you courage to witness for Jesus in sharing your faith with others. So again, friends, when are we going to wake up? When are we going to realize that just having programs for our children and our youth and our entire church is not going to cut it? We have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to guide, to direct, and to impact even those programs. I close with this question. Have you received your Pentecost? Peter said in verse 38 of Acts 2, the promise is for you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved and the gift of the Holy Spirit is yours for the taking. In fact, it isn't a gift unless you receive it. If I were to give you a gift this morning and you say, oh no, I can't, I can't take that from you, pastor, then it's no longer a gift. Right? Paul told the church, desire every spiritual gift. Desire it. Ask God to manifest His Spirit in you and through you in whatever way He decides is for you. You see, Jesus was and He still is God's special gift to the world. The Holy Spirit is God's special gift for the believer. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Worship team, would you come please? Receiving Jesus will give you power to become children of God. But as many as received Him, John said in John 1, 12, as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the children of God. Friends, I don't want us to be satisfied this morning until we receive what God has promised. So let's reach out to Him this morning. 
with our arms all held open wide in faith believing and say, Lord, I want what you have to give me. Fill me. Fill me, Jesus, with your spirit. Holy Spirit of God, it's yours. Do as you desire in our midst this morning. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, that you have already filled hearts with a desire today to have the empowerment to be effective that you have to offer them. I'm praying, Lord, that you have among your church saints who have been in the faith for many, many years who have grown tired of going through the motions, doing the spiritual calisthenics of what they've been taught was church. Lord, I, 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 I've, I've grown weary. I've grown weary in just having another Sunday morning service. God, when we come together, I want us to experience you. I want you to take over. I want you to supplant our plans with yours. I want to see bodies healed. I want to see relationships restored. I want to see your power make us effective to reach the many who are lost in this community. Lord, I'm not about building my church. I'm about building your church. Lord, as long as we reach them, I don't care if they go here or they go somewhere else. I just want to see them when they stand before you with their names written down in the Lamb's book of life. Would you stand your feet with me?